Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the U.S. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. This week, we continue to talk about uh, phylogenetics, and again, I am joined by Dr. Connor Meehan. So Dr. Connor is a lecturer in molecular microbiology at the University of Bradford. He specializes in whole genome sequencing and molecular epidemiology of pathogens, particularly mycobacterium tuberculosis and genome-based bacterial taxonomy. And we're also joined today by Dr. Leo Martins, who is the head of phylogenomics at the Quadrum Institute Bioscience. He enjoys developing and implementing tree-based models. So some of his are BioMC squared, Gnomu, TreeSignal, and there'll be links for those packages in the show notes. Uh, He's only recently moved to working with bacteria. Previously, he worked with viruses, eukaryotes, uh, but from a modeling and theoretical perspective. So thank you both for joining me again on the show. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for, Thanks for having, having us. All right. So let's get right into it. One of the th- critical decisions in phylogenetics is picking models. And so I think, I think for a lot of us, models are very complicated. So let's just go very broadly. What are the various models available for phylogenetics? Well, so I will start by saying why yeah. we need models. So models of evolution are there to help with the estimation of transitions between states. And that can be mutations from uh, one nucleotide to another or from one amino acid to another if you're using protein models. And a lot of them is, again, to help model multiple substitutions at a single site and try to, as closely as possible, fit the evolutionary patterns and pressures that would uh, shape the process that creates the tree at the end. So I've often heard it described as it doesn't have to be perfect. It's like the London tube map. It should be accurate enough to get you all the information that you need, but not so overly detailed that it's specific to only one set of analysis. Yeah, that's that's a nice way of summarizing. (laughs) So, yeah, and then I think, uh, and then on top of this, uh, you have usually when you see the models written down, you have the plus G plus I plus something. And so once you describe the, the... this instantaneous transition from between between the states and then you can also say that uh, maybe this the rates themselves they vary uh, along the tree and so this class of models are called covariant models and uh, you can also say that uh, they vary across the sites and so these are the I think a general term for them would be cat or category models and we have heterogeneity models i would say yes heterogeneity models but it's a heterogeneity between the sites because it can yes. also have heterogeneity between the the branches between the branches yeah yeah and uh so for instance the heterogeneity between the sites we have if you look at the software you can have i think four 
different ways of parameterizing them. So, you know, they have similar. So, for instance, the, 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 the famous one is the cat model from RaxML that is different from the cat model of Phylobase. And then at some mm -hmm. point there was some... Uh, anyway, I won't go into the details, but they, they are different. And you also have the gamma distributed models or the judicially based models, which... Uh, so, this is uh, in statistics you call a random model. That you say, I don't know what's in this site, I don't know what's the rate on this site, but it can belong to some rate that follows a gamma distribution. Okay, so the cat doesn't mean concatenate. No, uh, no it means category. Okay. And it's because there was a, so uh, historically, can I, can I go a bit uh, <laughs> old school? You, you can go old school. <laughs> so uh, historically, you had DNA ML, which is the package from Felsenstein on the Philip package. And then I think it's Gary Olson who wrote a version of it that's, that was called Fast DNA ML. So it basically, it was just an algorithm change and the program became faster. And then he also wrote a program that called DNA Rates, where it tries to estimate for each site what would be the optimal category. So what would be the, the, the optimal rate? It's like a multiplier. I think in, in, uh, you know, in Bayesian models, you can see this as a multiplier. And then RexML, I think the, the first versions of RexML were based on Fast DNA ML and DNA Rates. And so um, they imported the, the, the name cat from the DNA rates. But then I think at the same time, uh, it was Nicolas Lactiro was developing a phylobase, and then they also have this category model. But then it was an amino acid-based model. And uh, so the category is a category for the equilibrium frequencies of the amino acids, because I think the, the idea was that if you look at the protein and then if you look at different sites, so different sites, they can tolerate a different set of, uh, of amino acids because some of them are in the membrane, some of them are, are exposed. And then uh, they say, well, may maybe what changes between the sites in a, in a protein is the allowed, uh, uh, the allowed amino acids. So they change the, the equilibrium frequencies. And that's the phylobase category model. So I said I wouldn't go into details, but I ended up. <laughs> <laughs> so I would uh, say uh, the model how models are built and also how maximum likelihood works in Bayesian can be quite complicated, but on, there's a, Paul Lewis does fantastic introductions to how all this works. Mm. And on philoseminar.org, which is a seminar series run by Eric Sweet. Matson, he did a, uh, I think it was a two-part series showing all this kind of stuff. So if people really want to know how maximum likelihood works and pr the probability that goes into Bayesian and all these model selections and how the models are built, I suggest looking at Paul Lewis's lectures on that. We can link to it. Yeah, we'll link to that oh, in yeah, the show yeah, notes. That, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, but which is your personal favorite? DTR, HKY? DTR, of course. HKY? <laughs> Come on. No, okay, so there, there are two reasons, one personal and one... Uh, so uh, the, the personal one is that I did my PhD with Kishino, which is the K from HKY, uh, Hasegawa, Kishino, and uh. And, uh, but the second one is because this is, I think it, this is the most complex model that you have an analytic solution for it. So you don't need to solve the eigen, you know, the eigen system every time you want to calculate these rates. I think in practice, it doesn't change that much. It might be, I don't know, 1%, 0.2% faster than using a, a DTR. Yeah, I did my PhD with the general from from GTR. <laughs> well, I did my PhD on HIV, which uh, always needs a GTR model because of its such massive complexity and mutations. So I just started with that, and I subscribe a little bit to, which is where I guess we'll get into it, that overparameterization of a model is not as anywhere near as much of an issue as underparameterization of a model. 
so G, it's sometimes difficult to justify why you would not use GTR, and a lot of people yeah. subscribe to that way of thinking. Hopefully anyway, both right. of them are wrong, so. <laughs> both are wrong. Just about how wrong you are. So which is the best model? I mean, you set that one up. Which is the best model? Okay, the best model. The best model is whichever model, model test test tells you that it's your best model. So you have to do a model selection because the best model, it's uh, data dependent. So you have to, you, once you have your data and then you have to apply a, a battery of tests and then you see which one is the best model. In practice, it, this doesn't make a difference. As, as Connor mentioned, uh, it doesn't, you know, it's very hard to justify one over another based on the on what you want to do, right, with the with the tree. Actually, the fundamental difference we talked in the last episode about IQ tree and Maximal doesn't make a difference, but the people who make them fundamentally think two different things about models because IQ tree will do a test of all the models and then pick the right one and go forward. Raxamel mm -hmm. uses GTR and that's it. You can now explicitly tell it to use other ones, but um, Alexi doesn't doesn't seem to think that you need to pick anything but GTR and has kind of said that on multiple occasions with Raxamel, as far as I know. Are there any other more weird bespoke models that are sort of in common use? Birth or death model or here a whole, whole bunch of different things. Yeah, so there is one model that I think um, people should be paying more attention to, but the, I think there's not much going on there. Uh, which is it's called uh, Thorn Kishino and Felsenstein. So it's TKF91 and TKF92 mm -hmm. models because they incorporate the Indel process. So they incorporate, they they, they model explicitly uh, how Indels go into the into the alignment. That model is the basis for doing alignment and phylogeny construction yes. at the same time, like Balify and things like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The problem is that it's quite complicated to calculate, and I think uh, with the first one, with the 91, they ended, the, so they, they had a tendency to create very long indels, and then they had to fix that, and then they, that's why you have the, the TKF92 to try to fix that. And uh, if you write down the, the like of the equations, you can have, uh, you know, in, indels from zero to infinity, and so at some point you have to, anyway, it's hard to calculate, and uh, so far people didn't, didn't feel the importance of it, but I hope uh, you know, more people are going to be interested in this uh, in this kind of models because there's another one, a more recent one is called I think Poisson Indel process, yeah. uh, which is also similar to this. I think it's a simplification of this. I think that's an important point to, that people might not be aware of is when you construct phylogenies, you generally do not include insertion mm -hmm. or deletion events or missing data or missing data. It mm -hmm. is always just the base substitutions at a specific place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd say for, for model selection, or sorry, model implementation, working on nucleotides where you have no indels or missing data, that realm of research is, I would say, done extremely well. The next levels are really including indels and very good ways to deal with that. And then going on to codon models and protein models, where mm -hmm. if you're doing tree of life reconstructions, which Leo probably knows a lot more about than me, it's on the protein level, and those models of substitution are a lot more complex. Yeah, I think when you look at coding data, uh, usually, I don't know, it might be easier to, you know, to remove or to handle indels. Usually the practitioner uh, knows how to, how to handle that. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at tree of life, when you look at no coding regions, you have to be more, more careful because there's a lot of information uh, in the indels there. Okay, and following on from indels and weird models, there's always an issue of recombination. Yes, mm. I, said the, I said the R word, recombination, <laughs> which is absolute poison when it comes to phylogenetics, or at least that's the 
<laughs> that's the feeling. So how, what do we do with a combination in our tree? How should we deal with it? Is there, does it, is there models to deal with it? Do we have to do something as we've been talking about with our initial data? What's the best plan of attack for this? Um, Connor, if you wanted to start Connor, yeah. The harsh answer is you probably shouldn't be building a tree. If you have a lot of recombination, so if you work on a species which is recombination rich, like Burkholderius pseudomale or something, its genome has been estimated to be about 70 or 80% resulting from recombination. Then if you remove all that recombination, which is yeah. what most people do with RDP, if you're, you're making the noise viruses, and throwing away the signal. <laughs> yeah. You can use clonal frame ML, fantastic program from Xavier to remove it from bacteria. But if you've removed 75% of the data, what are you trying to get from that tree? And I'm harping on all the time about it, but like, why are you building a tree? And there you need to start going towards phylogenetic networks, which is a much more underdeveloped field. So you can use something like splits tree um, to try to find out the network of how everything's connected. And you'll probably just find everything's connected to everything because recombination is so rampant. Or try in a Bayesian framework like from um, Timothy Vaughn. He has Bacter. Yeah, Bacter inside of Beast, which will work on some genes and get you the ancestral reconstruction graph, um, recombination graph, sorry, to tell you what where the recombinations occurred within the timeline of these. But yeah, recombination is difficult. Most people put their hands over their ears, throw it away, and then don't think about it anymore. But uh, I think it's where actually most of the interesting stuff is happening, because that's where your antimicrobial resistance is coming from. That's how you know what bacteria or viruses are in close contact with each other, because they recombined in some way. So I think we need to develop more tools that don't throw it away and actually start to use utilize it. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's uh, that's the said true. If if there's a lot of recombination then you shouldn't be searching for a tree. You should be looking for the set of trees to the to the network. I'm not sure if split tree is the is the answer though, because you know if you yeah anyway it can describe the set of trees that it it can give you this, the, the set of trees that best describe your data. But this doesn't come from the fact that re different regions in the genome or you know in your alignment can come from from different topologies i don't know i'm not yeah, um, I would but agree. i think it might be you might be wanting to look more at forest based things where they're trying to see if across a set of trees you you always get the same groupings so even mm -hmm. if they're recombining yeah. they're always recombining together or they're more closely related in terms of the recombination events yeah that's so more comparative way, economics and phylogenetics at that stage yeah so the way that i see is uh if recombination is rare so there uh, there's a there's a goldilocks uh, number here when recombination is rare compared to the substitutions and then you assume that you have enough signal to have trees along your genome which means you can find the trees and the breakpoints where the where the tree changes along the, the genome. So for instance, this is what they do for uh, viral recombinant forms. I think so in the case of influenza, we have this reassortment. So you have, you know the breakpoints, but you assume the trees are different. But then if recombination is very, very common, like if you take a human population, a human sample, so recombination is much more common compared to the substitution rate. And then there's no way you're gonna get a tree. And there, then it makes no sense to talk about a tree unless you could have a tree of each one of the sites. Mm -hmm. In this case, uh, uh, there, there, uh, there are methods under the coalescent. So although you can you forget about the tree, but now you can still talk about the populations, about the, the recombination rate, the substitution rate and the, in, in the population. And then yeah. there are some methods that are something between. Uh, I, I think they're more non-parametric, which is like a, a, a Gubbins and a clonal frame, and then uh, so and some other methods that try to remove sites which have an excess of homoplasies 
or regions that appear to have an excess of substitutions, uh, which are all based on the idea that if something doesn't feel right within that, uh, that tree. Yeah, okay. I would agree with all that. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah, it comes to, so you have basically you have recombination in terms of what most people think of with recombination is within gene recombination. And that is quite difficult yeah. to work with. Yeah, that's and then it's like maybe building the tree really isn't what you should be doing. It's doing a lot more comparative genomic methods and mm -hmm. figuring out from there. If it's a whole genes being transferred from one to the other, then you can build those individual gene trees mm -hmm. and try to find those lateral gene transfer events with an AU test or something like that. Mm -hmm. And these are two, these are completely different ways of going about and they have different implications for the bacteria itself. Yeah, let's follow up on that because we've sort of so far been mainly talking about, we've been mainly talking about a sort of super matrix point where you where you've got you're sort of treating your whole genome core genome snips as one gene you're putting all you're mashing it all together and you're mm -hmm. using that sequence on its own which is one way to do it mm -hmm. and i don't think we've touched on a, a super tree a super tree yeah, yeah, a super tree, tree. <laughs> a super tree and so what is the and i think i think most people are more are more familiar with the former what is a super tree approach how does that di differ to what you would normally do, say, in Raxamel with all of your core genome SNPs? And would that be more tolerant of the combination or some of the problems we've been talking about? Okay, so I, I, I think the, the, la the last question is harder. So if it can handle recombination, I don't know. But just to, so just to give an overview, because I like super trees, I like distance between trees, I like to, I like to look at trees, because usually the, trees is something that we are very bad at, uh, at interpreting, because... Uh, if somebody gives me two trees, I cannot tell if they are similar or not. They are only similar or not com related to something, to some distance. So what are you looking? What what makes them different? What makes them similar? And so super trees are methods that when you have, historically is when you had incomplete information. So when you have, uh, so for instance, for one gene, you only have for a few species, for a different gene, you have for different species, and then you want to like concatenate the, the overlap, this, these trees, and have one that has information about all the, all the species. Uh, but I think nowadays uh, we are using the, the term more loosely, and I, I like that. It's uh, when you have a collection of trees, uh, how to summarize this uh, this information. So, for instance, one of the um, most uh, successful methods in this tree of life method is called Astro. And Astro is, uh, I consider it a super tree approach because it takes the individual trees from your individual genes and it tries to find a tree that it's optimal with regards, to, in this case, to the to the quarter distance of all your of all your trees, uh, so in theory, maybe if you describe the if you describe your problem as a recombination, so if you can have the recombination distance between your trees and a species tree, maybe you can have maybe you can you know kind of help solving the the recombination problem by having by finding the the, the species trees by finding the trees the super trees that minimize this recombination disagreement with your particular, with our individual trees. I don't know. Yeah, again, if it's if it's a lateral gene transfer event of whole genes, super tree methods, I think, tend to do better. So you can mm -hmm. also build super trees with um, a subtree prune and regraft approach, which Chris Widden had put out a few years ago and build super trees that way. And they tend to do much better with these lateral gene transfer events. Mm. But again, when it's a within gene recombination, that's when it gets really, really difficult. And I don't think either method is better for those. Is, is, that, pruning, is that pruning approach available or implemented in a package that's ready to use? Or is it it's, something? 
It is, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I have so I have to stop here. I'm waving my arms because <laughs> there's an implementation on Fangorn that I did because I did this uh, a long time ago. I implemented uh, it's not it's not uh, the proper SPR distance, but it's an approximation to the SPR distance that works very well uh, when the distance is not very large. But when the distance is not very large, you know, the trees are completely unrelated. So if you if you use Fangorn for R, uh, there's a there's an SPR distance there. It was because the lab that I worked in before, which is Robert Biko in Dalhousie in Canada. It, oh yes, it was yes. it was Chris Swidden who was working with him and doing his SPR. So it's all on Rob's website, as far as I know, still. Or now, yeah, I think Eric. I think, is, the, I think he's now working for Eric Matson, and they're doing stuff there. Yeah, but that's the kind of people uh, okay. who are doing that stuff as well now. Yeah, yeah. I think the first papers that I think the the, the first papers that I read uh, with this, uh, you know, associating this SPR distance with the combination were from Robert Biko. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good people. Yeah. <laughs> good people. Well, everyone's good people. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, all right, guys, uh, let me change tack a little bit. Uh, out of all of what we've been talking about uh, today, are there any particular areas we need to watch out for, uh, particular data sets or particular problems where tools really struggle that require, you know, out of all of your wisdom and expertise that people should know about and should be aware about? Uh, yeah, I think for me, the, it's not about the tool, but it's about the user. So I don't have a tools, <laughs> but with the users, uh, we should be very careful that, <laughs> that as more as we accumulate more data, because we have this thing that we want to have the tree. We want to find a single tree, or we want to describe something, and we want a point estimate. But we we don't have point estimates in life, and uh, so I think we should uh, we should start about we should start thinking about seriously about the diversity of uh, of data about about the uncertainty. You know, if you have 10 genes, these 10 genes might give you a different story and you shouldn't, you, you know, you shouldn't lose your hair trying to find which one of the genes is telling you the, the truth. You know, it's like the Japanese movie, Rosho Mo. You have, uh, you have five people telling a story. It's five different stories, but the, 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 the facts are, are the same. Don't spoil it, Leo. <laughs> don't, don't spoil it, Leo. <laughs> but this movie is from the, know, the 50s. <laughs> if you haven't watched the Rosho Mo, don't watch it anymore. Cause it's <laughs> no, please watch Rashomon. I yeah, yeah. very much like Rashomon. Please watch Rashomon if yeah. you haven't seen it. But, but you know, the, the, I think that's the, that's the thing. So you, if you have... A large data set, if you have a lot of genes, a lot of samples, they will tell you different stories. And you have to listen to this, uh, to all the stories that they are trying to tell you. A tree with a thousand faces. By the <laughs> uh, for me, it's that a lot of these methods were built for complete information, gene-based phylogenies. And the mathematics that goes into building these ones is way beyond my comprehension. It's for people much smarter. And it's difficult to build, and they just finally are getting to the point where they were good for genes, and then we all moved to whole genomes. And then we all now wanted to try to shove this whole genome data into programs that were not necessarily built for that. So my pet peeve, which if anybody knows me, is, is ascertainment bias correction of SNP data. The programs are built assuming that you've put in all of the data that you know. So you have your gene sequence, which has constant and variable sites. And people putting in SNP trees they're just going to be wrong. So it's about correcting for that, putting in your constant sites. And then a lot of that has issues because we have repetitive regions, whole genome phylogeny, sorry, whole genome sequencing is tends to not always be whole genomes. It's actually whole genomes minus all the repetitive regions. So it's understanding that the data you're putting in may not always be complete in the same way that the program is expecting it to be. So on trees based uh, primarily on SNPs, uh, what kind of errors that going to introduce for me in my experience i find that 
often the the if I run it with all the information and just the snips, I often find the topology is more or less correct, but my branch lengths all are rubbish. Yes. So yeah. going back to the models that we talked about, two things that will go into something like an HKY or a GTR model is the rate of transition between the different nucleotides, but also the frequency of the nucleotides that are seen. And if you just put in the SNP data, the frequencies of these four nucleotides will most likely be incorrect because you haven't accounted for all the constant sites and how many A's or C's or G or T constant sites there are. So if you're working on tuberculosis like me, very high GC content, whereas the variable sites may be very high AT content, and then you'll get completely wrong model of evolution, which will give you completely wrong branch lengths. But there are models that do try to uh, try to estimate this or work around it. Yes, you have, okay, the, the you, Lewis, not... you have the Lewis model that will do a single estimate recalculation without any extra information. You have the Felsenstein acetamous bias correction where you just tell it all the number of constant sites. And then you have the Stamatakis supposed one, which is where you tell it how many A's, how many C's, how many G's, and how many T's. Uh, were constant sites, and you just if you put that in with your SNP data, it almost definitely will give you the correct information. Almost, although myself and Leo did discuss this a little bit, and you should actually just put in the entire genome. Okay, yeah. so generally you can work around it, but try, but don't. <laughs> don't just use SNPs by themselves. You need to either put in the entire file. You need to be putting in the constant sites as well. Yeah, yeah, and so I think um, a reality check is if you have ten thousand genomes, but then you only have I don't know, 100 NIPs. Can you actually have a tree mm -hmm. for, of 1,000 uh, tips, you know, given that you only have 100 SNPs? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a, that's a reality check. You know, you, maybe you don't have enough data there to distinguish between one tree and another. So It needs yeah. to be phylogenetically informative, for sure. It yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of, because I do a lot of clinical phylogenetics, Mm -hmm. Things that are used for diagnostics are almost definitely not the things that can be used for transmission because diagnostics mm -hmm. is very low amount of variation and transmission mm -hmm. you want as much variation as possible. Yes, that's always something that I wrangled with when talking to clinicians going from a from a more purist microbiology background is methods, the more SNPs the better, the more discriminant power I have, the better it is. And then the question comes back to, yes, but you're not reflecting the species or you're not reflecting evolution anymore. You're introducing some other information. Mm -hmm. And the so this tree, is, this tree has all the information in the world that you can feed it, all the data you can feed it, rather, mm -hmm. but it's not informative. It's telling you the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And But this comes back to what we were talking about, where it's really important about the question. And yes, in some cases, yes, discriminant, you just want to see the different you want to put these apart with as much information as possible introduce as many very uh, variable sites as possible regardless of where they're from mm -hmm. and you just want to say is this the same or not which is fine so what is the next big big thing for phylogenetics i think we'll close with this question <laughs> uh where where are we where to next and i think we've we've sort of touched on it but i'd like to hear a summary from the two of you what's what's the next big area what would you like to see and what do you actually think is going to come next for me, because I moved from viral uh, phylogenetics and molecular epidemiology into bacterial ones, and the vast majority of programs, especially Bayesian programs, just cannot handle the vast amount of data that's in bacterial genomics with all these levels of different types of recombination, but also just the size of the genomes and the size of the data sets that we're coming out with. So 10 years ago, a data set of 20 isolates was enough for a paper, and now it's like 
oh, you only had 400 isolates. And then you're trying to build something with 400 isolates with either a lot of variation or not a lot of variation. And I think that's maybe the next step is scaling up a lot of Bayesian analysis to be able to handle larger and larger data sets, whether that's even possible. The other thing that I think is the next big thing is it's been done a little bit, which is alignment and tree estimation at the same time, as opposed to doing a two-step process where you align all your data and then you build a tree. Or alternatively, actually doing completely alignment-free phylogenetics using hidden Markov model approaches, which are very new and trying it that way. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I agree uh, that uh, I think alignment phylogenetic estimation is the best, is the next um, big thing. I think something like um, there, there are a few software available. So Pasta and Sate, I don't remember which is older, which is newer. I think Pasta is the new, is the newer version. I can give a link later. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it, they, it's it's for alignment, but since they construct the tree at uh, at some intermediate steps, then it might help a lot in this uh, co-estimation. So Sate uh, does an alignment and then builds a tree and then redoes the alignment based on that tree. And based on that tree, right? Until it doesn't change, right? Yeah. Or something like this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then there's some. I think there's another uh, software called PHMM3, which is uh, I think it's what you mentioned about the yeah, the Markov model based. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. And also Propip, which is the this based on the Poisson Indel process, was I think it's being done. I forgot his name. Uh, it's uh, Maria Nisimova, yeah, in, in Switzerland. And uh, so I think they are using it to do the alignment, but also it helps in the in the in the tree inference. And I hope there's going to be much more of this uh, in the future. And another thing that I would be happy to see more often, and I think it's the next big thing. It's whole genome alignment. So, yeah. uh, and you know how to use whole genome alignments for phylogenetics, for phylogenomics. Yeah, and replace uh, my answer with that answer. That's definitely the best answer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it was mentioned in the previous episode, right? Uh, and yeah, and genomographs, I'm looking at you because uh, I think that the big promise of the, the whole genome alignment, uh, it's, uh, it's with the genome graphs as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think that'll that's more or less the time we've got for for this session. Any final words from either of you two? Uh, understand your data and then build your tree from there. I'd like to 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 just to mention one paper from 2017 where they show that just I think I have the name of the of the paper here. Uh, contentious relationships in phylogenomic studies can be driven by a handful of genes, and it's Nature Ecology and Evolution 2017. And in this paper. They show that, so this, uh, the, the, the PI was Anthony Rojas. Of course, yeah, and, he's a scientist. <laughs> yeah, and then they showed that uh, if, you t if you look at the, at the you know, a, a tree of life size alignment, uh, so they, they have several data sets, and they show that in these data sets, just by removing a few genes, you can have a different phylogeny. And uh, removing a few sites from a few genes, you also have a different phylogeny. So I always think about this, uh, and there, there's a nice figure in this paper. I always think about this figure from this paper, you know, when I, when I think, when I have a data set, and then I think maybe I'm removing that one that is going to change the topology. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it's, uh, you won't sleep well for a few days after reading this paper, but it's quite interesting. I think it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fantastic. Okay. And, and so, yeah, yeah to, 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 you know, to end on a high note. End on a high note, that's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Everything's so, alive. I want to thank my special guests, Dr. Leo Martin. Thank you. Dr. Connor Meehan. 
uh, for joining me today. For joining me today, and I'm Nabil Ali Khan, and this has been the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrant Institute.